I'm going to start this morning with a commentary, if you will, that, that really resolves itself in a question. It goes like this. If in our pursuit of something, if in our pursuit of things uh, we miss the main thing, then our pursuits become limited, they, they are shortcoming and are unfulfilling. But, it, it, but if in our pursuit of something noble, just, honest, and pure, by the grace of God, we are able to keep the main thing, the main thing, then all is well and we can press forward in great victory in Christ. A question that comes to my heart, perhaps yours, if you're here in this room, maybe you're watching at home, we want to welcome you as well. A question that comes to my heart is this, what is the main thing in the Christian life? What is the main pursuit the Christian is to be engaged in. A couple of possibilities. Maybe you're thinking this morning right now and, and have an answer. A couple of possibilities. Is it a, a morality or a pure living that fits a biblical model? Is it a politic that fits scriptural definitions? Is it a fulfilled single life of one who is able to give all their attention to the Lord because they are not uh, bound in covenant relationship to a spouse? Perhaps it's a fulfilled married life and family life where a couple is raising children and seeking to be a witness for Christ in the world. Is the main pursuit of the Christian life a, a right handling of finances and often being uh, generous and willing to give for the work of the Lord in both tithes and offerings? How about it perhaps being a fluid and consistent history of, of church attendance and the company one keeps always kind of endeavoring to have fellowship with other Christians and be regular in one's attendance at church. And maybe also it is possible that one answer would be it is, it is serving God by serving others and seeking to meet needs as the opportunity arises. That's a long list, and certainly some if not all, of these possibilities are good and well. But a greater question really is this. What is Peter trying to communicate to the many, as he's writing, who have jumped the fence from, from Judaism to Christianity, or maybe that entire Gentile sect that left pantheism, uh, the worship of multi-gods, to then enter into monotheism, 
the worship of the one true God. What is he trying to communicate to his reading audience and through the inerrant and living, powerful word, those of us that would read this text as well? I believe the answer is clear. And I've stated in the title, if you will, of this study, this message, that it's really boiled down to one thing. It's all about Jesus. It needs to be about Jesus. It needs to remain at the core of who we are and what we do, that Jesus is our life. I even draw our attention back to verse 3 because Peter mentions it in the previous section. He says, if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is gracious, kurios in the original language, and he's speaking of Jesus, that his reading audience would have tasted and seen that Jesus is gracious. It's all about Jesus. And so now he, he writes in this, as I draw your attention to verse 4, that which we read together, he says, coming to him as to a living stone. Stop there for a moment. In some of your Bibles, the two words as to may be italicized. And what that means is that they've been placed in there to more uh, to help understand the sentence a bit better. The New International Version of the Bible reads it this way, as you come to him. As you and I come to him, Jesus. And this does not refer, really, in the context of that initial response of the sinner coming to Christ, but rather, again, looking at a a Greek lexicon that opens up to us Greek grammar, which I am not proficient in uh, in any way, but the books help. The Greek grammar here shows us that the tense and the voice of that phrase bespeaks of a personal, habitual approach. If you're taking note, it's a personal, habitual approach that Peter is referring to. It is an intimate association of communion between the believers and their Lord or the believers and Jesus. And he says that he is a living stone. That's a unique um, figure of speech, if you will. Peter uses a similar figure of speech in verse 3 of chapter 1. He talks about a living hope. In verse 23 of chapter 1, he talks about the living word. And now here he talks about Christ being a living stone. That the stone, Christ himself, has life in itself and offers life to others. You may have been out and seen that film that's popular lately, The Jesus Revolution. Maybe you've seen some of the commentary on it that's available, YouTube, other places. We watched one that 
had Greg Laurie being interviewed because the uh, film really is uh, puts him at the center in his life story coming to faith. And he said it in the interview. Was, we were just all about Jesus during that time. That's why they called it the Jesus Re- Revolution, the Jesus Movement. Because it had nothing to do with really denominationalism or church or politic or any. It was all about Jesus then. And it needs to be all about Jesus today. And so we find what I would like to call the scarlet thread of Scripture. The scarlet thread in scripture, which means that that Jesus is there from the beginning of Genesis all the way to through and to Revelation. In John's gospel, chapter 5, verse 39, when Jesus was talking to the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes who were constantly using the the Old Testament, the scrolls, the scripture, to talk about what God's will was and was to be for the people of Israel. Jesus said in John 5.39, he said to them, you do always search the scriptures for in them you, you think you have life, but they are what testify of me. Jesus said. He said, I'm, I'm in there from the beginning to the end. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And darkness hovered over the face of the earth. And the Spirit, oh, it tells us that the Spirit hovered over the face of the darkness, and then God spoke. And he said, let there be light, right? Many of us might be able to rehearse those verses right now. And, or in other words, light be and light was. And right there in God speaking, we have the living word, Christ. We have the triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son or the Word. Love that. It's also true that we see right when uh, God gave the creation of Adam and Eve and then they chose to disobey God and they discovered their nakedness in their sin. And in their nakedness, in their sinful condition, they sought to cover that sin in their own effort by sewing together fig leaves to cover their nakedness. And what did God do? He says, that's not enough. Man's attempt to cover his sin will never be enough. I need to intervene. And so he slays an animal and the blood is shed and he covers them with a skin. It's the scarlet thread of Jesus all the way through. You go to the the building of the ark where Noah builds an ark for the saving of his household because God is going to bring destruction upon the earth because of, he sees that the intent of man's heart is only evil continually. And then he calls Noah and his family into the ark to be saved. The scarlet thread, of, again, 
of Christ. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses in his song, the song of Moses, he calls uh, the Savior, God who had saved the people of Israel and brought them out, he's called a rock and that his work is perfect. In the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and in that vision or dream, he saw a huge image that represented the kingdoms of men, beginning with, of course, the Babylonian kingdom and then its successive kingdoms, the Medo-Persian kingdom, the Grecian kingdom, and then finally the Roman kingdom, which would then dissipate into this day and age, uh, kingdom of governments and ten nations. And Nebuchadnezzar watched as a great image uh, became a rock, a rock cut without hands. Daniel 2.34. And that rock was Christ. We know also that in the book of Numbers, there's a very powerful uh, illustration of this because it ties itself into something that happens in Exodus. In Exodus uh, 17.6, God commands Moses to strike a rock with the rod of his hand because the people had begun to complain. They had been brought out of bondage out of Egypt, and they were on their way to a land that God had promised he would give them. And they didn't get very far along in the Sinai Desert when they became thirsty. That makes sense. And in their thirst, they began to cry out to Moses and complain. You brought us all the way out here to to die of thirst? We need water. And so God Moses goes to God. He says, God, what do I do? God says, "Take, see that rod that is in your hand? I want you to strike the rock. And from the rock, life-giving water will flow. And so Moses struck the rock and the water flowed. And the people were satisfied for a moment. And as time went on, we see again in the book of Numbers, in chapter 20, that that same people found another way to complain to their leader about their thirst. We are a complaining bunch, aren't we not? At times things are well and we're going, praise God. Things go hard and like, God, what are you doing? They are not unlike us and we are not unlike them in some respects. But they, they again began to complain to Moses about their thirst. And so Moses, again, being the one that is supposed to point them to God for the answer to their need, seeks the Lord, and the Lord says to Moses, Numbers chapter 20, he says, Moses, speak to the rock, and the rock will give life-giving water. First time, strike it. Second time, speak to it. Exodus 17, Numbers 20. Now what's beautiful about the scarlet thread of Scripture, to me, is that 
God is seeking to show everyone that will come to this word who his son is. Now Moses was a bit frustrated by this time. It had been many years. He had fought many complaints. And unfortunately, in his frustration, instead of speaking to the rock, he took his rod and he said to the people, read it for you, he lifted his hand and struck the rock twice. He says, how long must I do for you, you rebellious and stiff-necked people, as if God was mad at them? And he struck the rock twice. And yes, life-giving water flowed again from the rock. But Moses, in his frustration, had given a wrong picture of who Christ is. You see, Christ was smitten once, struck once on the cross, not having to be struck again in order for life to flow from him. Paul tells us, in his letter to the Corinthian church in chapter 10, verse 4, that that rock that followed Israel through their trek through the desert, that that rock was Christ. The scarlet thread of scripture. And so we, as believers, are invited by Peter to come to him as a living stone because he has life to give he wants you and I to know life and it more abundantly. He wants you and I to seek him for that life which we desire. And it is interesting that we who do turn to him, this living stone, will also at times, notice the last part of verse 4, find that he is rejected indeed by men but chosen by God and precious. Rejected indeed by men. Reminds me of John chapter 1, verse 11. He came into his own, but his own received him not. His own rejected him. Isaiah 53, we're told uh, that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Rejected by many, but chosen by the Father, chosen by God, and to his Father, he, Jesus, is precious. Isaiah 42.1 says, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah God says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one, capital O, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench, for he will bring forth justice and truth. The Father speaks of Jesus. Speaks of Jesus as being to him chosen and precious. To other men rejected. To us also chosen 
and precious. I love what Peter brings out in the next verses. He says, and you also, look at verse 5. He says, you also as living stones. Notice that's a plural S. Christ, a living stone. We, living stones, plural. You also. Uh, Connect the two. Verse 4, last words, and the first words of verse 5. As God says the Son is chosen and precious, God says that you also are chosen and precious to him. Did you know that this morning? Do you know how precious you are to the Father God? He loves you so much. He desires that you know his love. And that anything that would distract you from knowing that love would be put to the side. You also, precious and chosen, he says, as living stones, notice, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So you think about a house, a spiritual house, right? Uh, One commentator puts it this way. Jesus is called the living stone. We are called living stones. We live because we are connected with him who is the source of life. It is in union with him that they live and answer the end of their regeneration as stones of a building have no use, but they occupy their proper place in a building and rest on that foundation. We, too, are a spiritual house. For many years, we had uh, construction workers here. We still have a few but I remember when we were transforming that chapel, uh, that used to be a triple-wide modular, if you can believe it. It used to house a dentist's office and a real estate office, and it was divided into three parts. And a guy with great vision could look at that and go, you know, I'm going to change that, and went inside and stripped all the walls down and lowered one floor to a pad level, which was the cement, and then put trusses on it and made it look like it looks today. When you think of the building of a house, it's clear that, certainly here in Calaveras County and anywhere else in the state of California, that before you can build, you've got to submit plans. There must be a plan. They go here in our county, they go to the planning commission and those who are gifted in that area overlook the plans and make corrections where they're needed. But there's got to be a plan. And then when that plan is approved, then it's time to lay the foundation. Earth is moved, dirt work takes place, the forms are set, the truck shows up, and the foundation is laid. There's a footprint now of of this house, where it's going to be, and what it's going to look like. 
And the multiple phrase, uh, phrases, phases of house building kind of intrigued me. I mean, there's the framing stage after the cement has set, it's timed, and here come the framers. And they put down those frames that begin to give walls and direction to what this, you know, foundation pad of cement is going to look like. Then you have trusses that come and are set apart, and you have the initial wiring, the initial plumbing, all to give way at some point to finish electrical, finish cabinetry work, carpets, and then there's this house. God says you're a house. He says you're a spiritual house. Our being built up, it's processal, it's, it's phases, just like some of you have built a house, and you know the phases take time. And so, what phase are you in this morning? Are you at that point where you understand Christ is the foundation of my life? And you're still waiting for some of the frame to happen. Or maybe you've come to Christ long ago and you understand that he is who you are set upon and the walls of your spiritual house have been somewhat built but there's still some work to do. Maybe you're in that, you know, rough framing part where it just doesn't look like much of a house right now. Maybe you're at that point where the finished work is ready to happen. You know, one day we get finished when we leave this world and enter into glory. That's when that last nail is set, that last screw is driven. God says, okay, I'm done with building you up. I'm calling you home now. Have you ever thought about your life that way? I think about my life that way occasionally, if not often, that, hey, I'm just in process here. We are a spiritual house being built up. We are a holy priesthood, Peter says. You also, talking to the believers that would read this, speaking to you and I by way of the Holy Spirit, you are, I am, a spiritual house being built up. We're, we're in phases. And we are a holy priesthood. Notice what he says there in verse 5. A holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Remember what the role of the priest was and is? The role of the priest at the time of this writing, before the inception of uh, a, another idea of priests in church history, the idea of the priest here that Peter is writing about was that there was a man, typically of the tribe of Levi, or a descendant of, because Levi and his descendants were set apart to be priests unto the Lord. And their job, remember what their job was? 
you, you and I should be able to recite this verbatim. Their job was to stand before God on behalf of the people, and then they were to stand before the people on behalf of God. That was their role. That was their job. Stand before God on behalf of the people, interceding for them, praying for them, seeking to bring them to God, and then stand before the people on behalf of God to communicate God's love, God's law, God's will. Ah, <laughs> guess what? You and I are priests. Now I'm talking not about some denominational uh, idea of a priesthood that you have to go to a person in order to get to God. No, there's one mediator between man and God, the man, Christ Jesus. And if we've come to him in faith and know him as Savior, we then are a direct link to God. I love it, but it, it I won't say it troubles me, but it, it, startles me, I guess is one word. Whenever someone will come to say, Art, will you pray? Uh, pray for me. And I'll go, well, sure, I'd be happy to, but what's going on? They tell me what's going on. And I say, okay. And they go, you've got a better link than I do. You know, you've got that direct link. No, we all have a direct link, right? Can I hear an amen? All right, so we all have a direct link through Christ to Almighty God, and so we too have a glorious privilege to stand before God on behalf of those in our life and to stand before those in our life on behalf of God. A holy priesthood. And why? Why are you a house and a priest? Why am I a spiritual house and a holy priesthood? Why do we exist? What was I brought on this earth for? Peter puts it, he says, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's why we are that's why we exist. That's what we're to live for. To offer up spiritual sacrifices which become acceptable to God through Christ. And what sacrifice can we bring? There's nothing that we can bring that God will delight in except our lives. To bring your life as a sacrifice to God. And so Peter continues in verse 6. He says, therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Now, what this brought to my mind as I was studying this passage is a Peter's working knowledge of the scripture. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is because Peter was so... Uh, so keen on who Jesus is that he was able by reason of the work of the Holy Spirit in his own life to point out scriptures that would help P 
people in the moment understand more about Jesus. Okay, let me restate that. Peter was not a trained scribe. He was not a trained theologian. He wasn't a trained person in the Old Testament. Had he gone to synagogue? More than likely. But he was a little rough around the edges. He was a fisherman by trade. And so he wasn't educated. He wasn't learned. You remember, they even noticed that in the fourth chapter of Acts. When a man had gotten healed, and read it later today, it's beautiful. A man had gotten healed and and 5,000 had come to Christ. And the religious leaders came to Peter and said, by what power or what name are you doing this? We want to know. How can you allow this to happen? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people of Israel and elders, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. And this is the stone that the builders rejected. You builders rejected him, which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Hallelujah. And when they saw his boldness, when those, you know, well-educated, learned scribes and Pharisees and theologians, when they saw Peter's boldness, they knew he was an untrained and unlearned man, but they could tell he had been with Jesus. And that's, that's really all it takes, beloved. They're just spending a lot of time with the Lord. Hang out with him. And he, he quotes some verses here. Uh, this is what I mean about his working knowledge of the scripture. He quotes Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. And then Peter continues to his reading audience. He says, therefore, to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient. So there's two camps. There's those who will believe and obey. There are those who disbelieve and will not obey. And so he quotes here in in verse 7, he quotes Psalm 118 verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And he must have been thinking about that time at the inception of the New Testament church when he was challenged by the religious leaders of his day. No doubt that that passage had struck him, had, was important to him. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And there is a story, not sure where the account comes from, but there is a story about the building of Solomon's temple. You can go to 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 7, what you will find 
is that when the order was given to, to build Solomon's temple, the workers, the masons, they were to chisel out the stonework in a quarry way far away from where the temple was going to be built. And in that quarry, there would be uh, plans for each stone to be chiseled a certain way, a certain length, and then that stone was uh, wheeled by cart and oxen to the place and set where it was to be set. If you've ever been to Israel, you can see, of course, um, Herod's temple, which was the rebuilt of Solomon's. And, and even in that, the large, huge stones, these things weighed tons, but they would be cut in a quarry. Imagine, under the guide of a, of a, of a plan, that, you know, stone three is to go here, stone four there, stone 28 over there. I'm just putting some rough ideas in our minds. And the way the story goes, although it has its uh, proof in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 7, that they were to be quarried away so that no sound of the hammer would be heard in the temple, there is a story that at one point the, the cornerstone of the temple arrived at the building site early. And the masons and workers, they, they didn't know what to do with it. That, it. They weren't ready for that stone. They didn't know where it was supposed to go because they were still in process. Somehow, you know, mistakes happened. The stone got sent early. And so a decision was made to put that stone. They rejected it and they put it to the side. And if you study how long it actually took to build Solomon's temple, you can easily come to the conclusion that over off to the side, it would have been covered with uh, perhaps dirt, sand, brush would have been, uh, begun to grow around it. And they got to the point of the building of the temple where they were now ready to set the cornerstone. And the men at the quarry said, no, we've sent you everything. And said, no, there's one more. And said, no, we, we don't see anything elsewhere. And then someone remembers, oh, remember that one that we refused? It's over here. And they went and got it and placed it. And that's where this text comes from, is that the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And Peter is describing what happens to a man that can't, man or woman, that can't come past their preconceived ideas of, what, of who Jesus is and what God has done through the work of his son on the cross. When, when they can't get past that, and maybe you know someone this morning, they may even believe in God. The Bible tells us the demons believe and tremble. And they believe in God, but they're not ready to accept this, you know, this one way of uh, acceptance into heaven. Peter says in verse 8, they become a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word which they were appointed. Reminds me of a, 
a classic possible interview that a dear friend of mine wrote about. And in that interview, looking for it right now, there we go. In that interview, we have someone who's interested in knowing God, but is questioning that there is only one way to know the forgiveness of God. Kind of like when you apply for a job, right? When you apply for a job, uh, you want to know that the company you're applying for is going to be able to use you in a correct way. And it's the same way the company that you're applying to wants to know that you are going to be able to do the job for them. So the interview, the interviewee and the interviewer, the interviewee says, God, I'd like to ask you a few questions. And I have to tell you right now that your answers will determine whether or not I'll let you into a relationship with me. Okay? So here goes the first question. Did you make the heavens and the earth? God answers and he says, yes, I did. The interviewee says, wow, the stars and the planets and the rivers and the waterfalls and the animals? God says, yes, I created it all. Then the interviewee says, well, why did you create man last? And God says, I saved the best for last. Then the interviewee says, well, but actually you created the woman last. And God says, well, like I said, I kept the best for last. What happens is that I created man, and I said, I can do better than that, and I made woman. You can laugh. So the interviewer says, so do you have all power? God says, yes, I do. Interviewer says, well, then why do you create little Johnny with Down syndrome? God says, Man's sinfulness causes Down syndrome. Interviewer says, well, remember, God, I cautioned you that at the beginning of this interview about what was writing on it, and you got off to a good start. I like a God with all power, and even I like a God that cracked, the, I like the joke about creating woman last. A deity with a sense of humor is important to me, None of those new age gods know how to laugh. But you're already talking about man's sinfulness, and I don't particularly care for that line of thought. Now, if you're so powerful, why don't you just overrule what you call man's sinfulness and correct everything? God says, I don't work like that. Interviewer says, why not? God says, you wouldn't understand. The interviewer then says, you know, we're two minutes into this interview and that is, it's very important to both of us and you've blamed your creation gone haywire on man and now you've insulted my intelligence by saying that I wouldn't understand your divine mind. Give me a break. As far as I'm concerned, that's two strikes against you. Let's see how you do with this next question. Can I do anything I want without having to worry about 
negative consequences. God says, no, my nature and character are opposed to sin. The interviewer says, I warned you, three strikes, you're out, and decides to end the interview. My friend brings out this concept that men and women are created in the image of God and we have returned the compliment by seeking to create God in our own image. And because of sin, our intellect sometimes refuses to believe that there is only one way. And yet Peter brings it out that to some, he is an offense. He is a rock of stumbling, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And they stumble being disobedient to the word which they also were appointed. In, in other words, God says, here's my divine plan. Here's how you can know me. Here's how you can have eternal life and life more abundantly And I've appointed you to this word. In other words, I've made it available to each and every one. But some choose to disobey it. Probably no one in this room. Maybe not even anyone watching at home. But there are some that do. And Jesus stands as either Savior or an offender. Remember what he said to his disciples in Matthew's gospel. He said in Matthew 10.32, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have set... For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those in his own household. At times, even within the context of our blood relatives, there can be the fact that our devotion to Jesus becomes somewhat of an offense. Why? Because they stumble at it. It's... They just can't understand this love for this invisible yet tangible Savior who has loved us so much that he laid down his life that we might know his Father. I love Peter's clarity here. and He brings it home to us that it's all about Jesus. And we're to remember that as we go forward in our Christian life. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Fathers, we end our time together here as you have opened up your word to us and spoke to us through it. We are here to say, Lord, 
be our life. Jesus, be our everything. For you are the foundation of our salvation. And there are some that will be offended by that. But we know that you are the cornerstone. You are what our faith is built upon. You are whom our salvation rests upon. And because of that, we rejoice and we say, yes, Lord, have your way. We declare you as our cornerstone this morning. One that we rest upon. The one we lean on. We ask it in Jesus' name.